This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Continue our series entitled Better Together, where we're taking a look at the importance of the local church. And uh, over the last uh, two weeks, we've been taking a look at the ordinances of the local church. Last week, we took a look at baptism, why it's so important to us. And this week, we're taking a look at the Lord's Supper. Uh, next week, we'll also talk about the Lord's Supper and why that's important. I did you guys a favor this week, and you didn't even know it. Typically, a Sunday morning message for me, I'll usually have about two pages of notes. I had nine pages of notes for today's message. And so I did you a favor, and I made it into two separate messages. Isn't that nice? Uh, so you can thank me later. But uh, anyways, uh, so next week we'll continue talking about the Lord's Supper because there's just too much about the Lord's Supper to pack into one message. Uh, so we uh, broke it up over two weeks. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we find ourselves today. Now just to give you a little bit of a context here, what's going on, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at what we would call the Last Supper, right before he was crucified. Uh, he met with his apostles one last time. They observed the Passover celebration, uh, and they, uh, he talked about what the Lord's Supper would look like going forward. Now, uh, fast forward, the church at Corinth uh, was a, a messed up church, to put it nicely. Uh, the Apostle Paul had, had started the church at Corinth uh, and pastored it for about uh, 18 months or so, and then moved on to start other churches, and uh, a lot of problems happened. And so he wrote him a letter to try to sort things out and get everything uh, kind of uh, situated. And so that's the letter that we find in 1 Corinthians. One of the multitude of problems that they had going on there was the Lord's Supper. Uh, it was instituted as a way to remember Jesus. It was instituted as a way to uh, celebrate what he had done, but it had turned into uh, more of a kind of a raucous party type environment where people were, uh, it was almost like a potluck where there was a lot of alcohol. Uh, people were getting drunk and these, whoa, 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 you guys have missed the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper. Let's roll this back and see how Jesus instituted it and why it's so important to us. For us, uh, Jesus gave us two ordinances for the local church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we'll be taking a look at the Lord's Supper today and why that's so important to us as Bible-believing Christians today. First Corinthians chapter 11, we're gonna start uh, in verse number 23. <clears throat> First Corinthians eleven twenty-three: for I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, when he had given thanks, he break it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he also took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord but let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another, if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. 
The Lord's Supper is a beautiful celebration and a time to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. Uh, and it, it comes from an amazing book. If you've never had the opportunity to read through the books of Genesis and Exodus, fascinating stories. Uh, sometimes people, when they come to the, the faith in Christ, and they'll say, well, I want to read the Bible, I want to start at the beginning. Uh, start in the book of Genesis and start reading through the, the whole Bible. Uh, the, the books of Genesis and Exodus are phenomenally exciting books to read. You take Genesis, how God spoke the world into existence and he created uh, man uh, and breathed into the dust of the ground, into his nostrils, the breath of life and created the first man named Adam and God saw that he wasn't good so he gave him a woman and while he slept, he took a rib out of him and put it in and created this woman from Adam's bones of his bones and now flesh of his flesh. We go on to see uh, the story of, of Noah and all that he did and we find a man by the name of Abraham uh, who had a wife named Sarah and they couldn't have children they prayed and prayed and prayed, and God made Abraham a promise. He says, I'm going to give you a land that's going to be yours. I'm going to give you a seed that the nation that will come from you will be more than the numbers of the stars in the sky. And I'm going to give you a blessing so that in you all the world will be blessed. We sometimes refer to that as the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham would have uh, a son named Isaac. Isaac would have two sons named Jacob and Esau. And from uh, the, the son Jacob would come the nation of Israel Jacob wrestles with an angel all night long and then changes his name to Israel. Uh, and then Israel has sons, and from that come the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the sons was very favored. It was Joseph. He had a coat of many colors. His brothers hated him because of it, and they actually sold him into slavery. He took his coat, took it back to dad, and said, hey, dad, uh, Joseph got ate by wild animals. This is the only thing that's left of him. And then sold him into slavery Joseph would then go into slavery and become second in command in all of Egypt, right under the Pharaoh himself. And then when famine came to, uh, to the land, these boys went back to Egypt to try to get food. And they saw their brother. Amazing story of that. God reunites their family back together. They all settled down in Egypt with their brother who's second in command. That's the book of Genesis. Wow, so much stories, so much good stuff there. Then you get into the book of Exodus. Joseph has died, and the Bible says there arose a generation who knew not Joseph, and these people don't know who Joseph is and don't know the promises that were made to Joseph. And now the children of Israel have become slaves in Egypt. Now these guys who were once uh, welcomed guests are now just slave laborers. There's a boy who's born, and uh, his mother tried to hide him because they were killing all the babies at that time. The mother tried to hide him in the, the river, Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby and begins to raise him and passes him off to his mother. The boy's name was Moses. Moses grows up and actually kills an Egyptian man and flees for his life and just starts farming. Finds him a piece of land and starts farming. And God says to him, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And he says, I can't do it. I'm not a really good speaker. Well, I'll take a brother with you. He'll do all the work for you. Just show up and tell people what I said. And here's the fascinating part about the Bible is it begins, this story begins to unfold. Moses says, okay, I'll go. But who do I tell him sent me? I don't even know what your name is. Imagine Moses having an audible conversation with God. He speaks to God and God talks back. And he's like, so when I get there and I say, this person told me to set his people free, what should I tell him is your name? He says, tell them I am that I am. In other words, I am the self-existent, eternal one who needs no other. We sometimes use that word to refer to Jehovah, the name of God. 
when Jesus in the book of John would say, I am the bread of life. He was saying, I am Jehovah God. When he was talking with the Pharisees and he says, before Abraham was, I am, he was claiming to be the Jehovah God of the Old Testament. And the Bible says they got livid with him and called it blasphemy. All the stories beginning to unfold just through the, the first book and maybe 10 chapters of the book of Exodus. So God says, go and tell him to set my people free. Tell Moses, to, or sorry, tell Pharaoh to let him go, but he's not gonna let him go. I'm gonna actually harden Pharaoh's heart. And again, if, if you just take time to dissect all of this and, and say, what does this mean to me? God told Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, but he's not gonna let him go. I'm gonna harden his heart and he's gonna hate your guts. What can I learn from that as, as a man living in 2020? I know this, if God tells you to do it, just do it. The path might not be easy. It might be difficult. God might make it difficult on purpose in my life, but God always has a plan and he always knows what I'm doing. And there's so much stuff that I can get from just the story of Moses, more than just a story. So Moses says, God's gonna send a plague and you're gonna have to let him go. And plague after plague comes. And then it gets to a point where Pharaoh goes, I'm not really impressed with your God and all these plagues. My magicians can do these plagues. This is nothing. And the magicians come out and they do the exact same things that God was doing. Okay. And God tells the children of Israel, hey guys, get ready because Pharaoh's gonna let you guys go tonight. I want you to take food from your neighbors. I want you to take uh, clothing from your neighbors. I want you to borrow jewelry from your neighbors because you're gonna leave in the middle of the night and you're gonna have to take all this stuff with you. And so God says, get ready. There's one final plague that's coming and you'll be set free. The death angel's coming. This is the 10th and final plague. God says this, I'm gonna send a death angel to wipe out every single firstborn child in all of Egypt. But I don't wanna do that to my chosen people, the Jews. So Jews, so the death angel knows that you're not to be touched. I want you to find a lamb without spot or blemish. I want you to slit its throat, take its blood, smear the blood over the doorposts of your house. So when the angel comes in the middle of the night to take the firstborn child in every house, he'll see that blood on the doorpost and go, oh, these are the Jews, skip over them. The blood's been applied to their account. And so the death angel would pass over these houses. Happened exactly the way that God said it would happen. The death angel came, and the Bible says that God took the firstborn child in Pharaoh's house. He took the firstborn child of the, the man who is in the dungeon or prison. He took the firstborn of the cattle of every family and killed it just like he said that he would. Pharaoh wakes up in the middle of the night. The Bible says all of Egypt woke up. And Pharaoh says, I don't know what you've done, but you need to get out. Go. Whatever you want to do, wherever you want to go, I don't care. Just leave. And so they grabbed their stuff in the middle of the night and they left. And then Pharaoh starts scratching his head and goes, wait a minute. I just let about a million of my slave laborers loose. And I don't know who's going to do all the work now. Let's go get them and bring them back. Bad idea. And so the Bible says that Pharaoh and his armies got in chariots and they began to pursue the children of Israel who were on the run. And the children of Israel came to the Red Sea and they're all standing there. 
And God says, Moses, take your staff, put it on the water, the Red Sea's gonna part. And the children of Israel are going, Moses, really? Like, we could have stayed in Egypt and just worked, but you brought us out here in the wilderness to die. What were you doing? And the enemy's breathing down their neck and breathing down their neck, and there's nowhere they can go because they're at the edge of the body of water. And Moses does exactly as God says, and they walk across on dry land, a million Jews walking across on dry land. The Bible says they got to the other side and Pharaoh's army pursued and God caused the water to come down and drown Pharaoh and all of his armies and they stood there on the other side of the Red Sea on dry land with no enemies pursuing them completely and totally free. And God says, keep on going. Man, phenomenal stories found in the book of Exodus. And so if you're, like I was the first time I read through the Bible, man, you're turning pages and you're like, I can't wait to get to Leviticus. Only to realize Leviticus isn't so heavy on stories. It's more heavy on law and the letter of the law and why you do this the way that you do and the, the, the finite points of the law. Leviticus is a fascinating book as well if you read it in the right context. And then you move on to the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy literally means second law giving. So it actually repeats a lot of what Leviticus actually says. And so it's kind of a hard book to read as well, but, but equally rich in doctrine and, and a, a pic, really a picture of Jesus Christ in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But man, those first two books, those are the stories that we tell kids in Sunday school. Those are the, the stories that people want to hear. Those are the stories in kids, uh, you know, books that we read about. Fascinating stories. But God says, hey Jews, my children, I want you to remember this. And so that Passover time, God says, here's what we're gonna do from here on out. Every single year, we're gonna have a feast. It's gonna be called the Passover feast. And I want you to teach your kids about what I did when I led you from bondage and slavery into freedom. I want you to remember the blood of that lamb that was put on the doorposts. I want you to remember how you had to leave in the middle of the night. And I want you to tell them that God's strong hand brought you out of Egypt. Remember, in this Passover meal, I'm gonna give you some guidelines as how to follow it. It's your way to remember that God set you free. And so Jesus gathers together with his apostles. The Bible says on the night that he was betrayed. Gathered together with these apostles to celebrate the Passover meal. They had already made preparations. They had the unleavened bread. They had the, the cup. They had to have had made preparations to have a roasted lamb as well for the meal that they would have. And Jesus said, I want to tell you a story. But the story tonight is not about how God brought us out of Egypt. It's about how God is going to deliver mankind for all of eternity. So the very first Lord's Supper ever took place during the feast of the Passover. So the very first Lord's Supper that takes place takes place during this feast of the Passover. Again, the apostles gather together in an upper room. We call it the Last Supper. I don't think they called it the Last Supper. The words Last Supper aren't actually found in the Bible anywhere, but uh, it takes place during that feast of the Passover. And again, during the Exodus, the blood of a spotless lamb was to be applied to the doorpost of the home. And at midnight, the death angel would take the firstborn of each household unless the blood was upon the doorposts. Exodus chapter 12, verse number 29 says it this way, and it came to pass that at midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all the servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. He called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. It happened exactly how God would say, say it would. Get your stuff get out. And so the Passover feast was actually a remembrance of God's liberation of the children of Israel from the slavery of Egypt. Because so many times we forget how good God is. So many times we forget what God has done for us. God says, I want to make sure you don't forget. I'm going to make a special meal that when you do that, this is the time where you remember how I brought you out of Egypt. And so we instituted the feast of the Passover Exodus chapter 13, verse number 14, it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, what is this? Thou shalt say unto him, by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of bondage. A couple of things we need to get from that verse in Exodus chapter 13. He says, when your son asks you, why are we eating this meal like this? I want you to tell him how God delivered you. If you have children under your, your roof, you are responsible by God for instructing your children why we do what we do. Why do we have to go to church every Sunday? We don't have to go to church every Sunday. We choose to go to church every Sunday. We go to church to worship the Lord together with other believers. We are the church. Jesus created the church as a place for us to have community and to be able to worship him. And we get to do this every week. It's a privilege to gather together as a church. We don't have to go to church. Son, we get to go to church. It's my job to instruct my children that way. That requires that I actually know what I'm talking about first and foremost, though. But also this tells us that we need to remember what God's done. God instituted the feast of the Passover because if you read through the rest of the story of the Exodus, God says, I want you to go into a land that flows with milk and honey. Everywhere your foot walks, it's yours. Just keep walking, keep claiming, it's all yours. And so they said, okay, well, let's send some spies out to see what the land looks like. So they sent 12 spies out. The spies come back and they say, there's giants there, there's armies there, they're tougher than us, they're stronger than us, they're richer than us. 10 of them said, there's no way we can do this. Uh-uh, not gonna happen, we're toast. Two of them says, we got this. Joshua, Caleb, with God's help, we got this. Let's plow forward. The children of Israel said, nope, we're scared. Not going to do it. And God said, okay. Every single one of you who is 19 and up, you're going to wander around for 40 years and you're going to die. All those 18 and below get to go into the promised land. So for the next 40 years, the children of Israel would wander in the desert until all the faithless, unbelieving ones died. You know what that means? That means in 40 years, the majority of people didn't even really remember the story of the exodus of Israel because most of them were dead already. So God says, I want you to have this feast to remember. And there came a point, probably within 100 years, that nobody was ever actually in Egypt as slaves, but God still said, have this feast every single year to remember how I brought you out. This Passover meal was only for Jews. Non-Jews couldn't celebrate the, the Passover feast. If you were to have a Passover meal together, and you had a friend over, that friend had to wait outside while you enjoyed the, the feast, not for anybody else. 
Exodus chapter 12, verse number 43, says the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof, but every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then he shall eat thereof. A foreigner of a hired servant shall not eat thereof. Here's what's gonna happen. If you've got a servant that you've actually purchased, who's part of your household, if they are circumcised or follow the law given to Jews and make themselves a Jew, then they can eat thereof. You got a friend passing through from out of town or a, in this case here, a contractor that does work for you, a hired servant, they don't get to eat of this. This is my meal for my people. And so the children of Israel, God's chosen people, special meal set up for them to remember how God brought them out of slavery this is not just for anyone. This is only for God's chosen people. I hope your wheels are turning right now and trying to figure out how this Passover meal relates to Jesus Christ. How does Passover point to Jesus Christ? What is the fact that only certain people can eat of this meal? What does that mean and how does that affect us today? I hope you're beginning to put those thoughts together. One author explained the Passover meal this way. It began with the host pronouncing a blessing over the first cup of red wine and passing it to the others present. There'd be four cups of wine that were passed during the meal, and after the first cup was drunk, bitter herbs were dipped in a fruit sauce and then eaten, and a message was given with the meaning of the Passover. So they would take the first cup, drink it. They would take bitter herbs, dip it in a sauce, and then eat that. And then the host would say, Hey, folks, thanks for coming today. Here's why we celebrate the Passover. Our ancestors, our forefathers, they were actually slaves in Egypt. And God brought them out by his strong hand one night. God sent the death angel to take the firstborn child in every home except for us because we had taken the blood of the lamb and placed it upon our doorpost and God passed over us. And so as we enjoy this meal tonight, this is our opportunity to remember how God has delivered us from the slavery of Egypt. Then the first part of a hymn, the halal, where halal means praise, was sung. It was comprised of Psalms 113 through 118 was the halal. Then the second cup was passed. The host would break and then pass around unleavened bread. Then the meal, which consisted of a roasted sacrificial lamb, would be eaten. Then a third cup after the prayer was then passed and the rest of the halal was sung. Then a fourth cup uh, was celebrated and uh, the coming kingdom was drunk immediately before leaving. And so they had several things that they did, four cups that they drank, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, roasted sacrificial lamb, and then uh, they would drink another cup and then they would leave. So all of these had a, a distinct meaning as far as what it meant to the children of Israel and how it related to their past. You see, the unleavened bread was a picture of their flight from Egypt. The Bible says that when they went in the middle of the night, all they had was dough. They didn't have bread to take with them. All they had was dough that hadn't even been leavened yet. And so they bagged up this dough, boxed up this dough, threw it in, in, in whatever baskets that they had, and they took it with them out into the wilderness. And when they got out there, all that they had was this bread that hadn't even been leavened yet. It had no yeast in it. And all they could do is they cooked the bread, was simply cook unleavened bread, and this unleavened bread that would be served at the Passover feast was a picture. Hey guys, tonight we're eating unleavened bread because when our ancestors, when our forefathers were leaving Egypt, they didn't have time to leaven their bread. They didn't have time to cook their bread. And so it's not bread proper, it's just uh, unleavened bread. And so we do this to remember how God in the middle of the night took us out of slavery and delivered us 
from our sin or from our slavery. Exodus chapter 12, verse number 39, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt for it is not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither as they prepared for themselves any victual. So that bread was a picture of the fact that they had to leave in the middle of the night. Next, the cup that they drank, one of the cups that they drank would be the representation of the blood of the Passover lamb. They had to find a, a lamb there on that Passover night and they had to kill it. And they had to take its blood and smear it on the doorposts. And this cup of red wine that they would drink would be symbolic of that Passover lamb's blood. During this feast of the Passover, they would still have to take a lamb, this sacrificial lamb that they would later eat. They had to kill it. Jewish tradition says it's many times this, uh, this spotless lamb that they were required to get would oftentimes be uh, with the family for a week or two before it would actually be slaughtered. It kind of in some homes kind of became a representation of like almost like the family pet. You have a, a lamb in the house or a lamb around the house that they would have. And the adults leading up to this Passover feast would know that this lamb was going to have to die at some point. And it had to be not just any lamb, but a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without spot. We couldn't take the old lamb that was getting ready to die anyways. We couldn't take the lamb who only has three legs or uh, is blind in both eyes. We can't take the lamb whose wool never really came about and had a really good coat. We had to take the best lamb that we had. We're going to use that one as the Passover lamb. When the feast of the Passover comes, we're actually going to slit its throat. We're actually take the meat. We're going to roast it. We're going to eat it. We're going to remember how God brought us out by the blood of this lamb out of slavery in Egypt. The Passover meal itself had no supernatural power, but it was a time to reflect, remember, and praise. Nothing mystical or magical took place at the, the Passover feast. There was nothing sacred or holy about this lamb. It was just the best lamb that they could find that they offered up as a sacrifice to God as a way to remember. Nothing mysterious or magical took place as they drank these cups. It was just a time for them to stop for a minute, reflect on their life, the life of their ancestors. It was a time for them to remember everything that God had done for them. And it's a time for them to praise God. And so this yearly feast was a time to pull over and remember the faithfulness of God. Now, why are we talking about the Passover feast when today we're talking about the Lord's Supper? Because Jesus took the Lord's Supper and took this Jewish custom and transformed it into a beautiful way for the New Testament church to remember and honor Jesus. As we look at this passage here that we took a look at this morning from 1 Corinthians, notice Jesus as he presides over the Passover meal doesn't say to them, hey folks, this unleavened bread is a representation now of how our forefathers had to flee Egypt in the middle of the night. No, 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 you know what he says? This bread is a representation of my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. The cup that was passed that night was not a cup that he says, hey folks, let's use this to remember the Passover lamb and how the Passover lamb was the indication that we belong to God. And he says, hey, this blood, this cup, 
is a representation of my blood, which is shed for you. And as often as you drink it, I want you to remember me and everything that I've done for you. So now we see a transition. Jesus says, Passover feast is done. Now we start the Lord's Supper. If you haven't already connected the dots yet, you and I, we were in slavery. Oh, we were never slaves in Egypt. We were slaves to our sin. We were slaves to this world's way of thinking, this world's way of doing things, and we could not break out. We could not break free. We couldn't make a run for it because we always got shucked back in to the slavery that we had. And God, because of his justice and righteousness, he says, your, your sin is gonna be judged and judgment is coming. And the wages of your sin, what you've earned as a result of your sin is death. And death is coming for every single one of us. This is your judgment that's coming. We were slaves to our sin. Our sin had been judged. Death was coming. And God says this, if you'd be willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, I would be willing to take the blood of my son and to put it upon the doorposts of your house so that when judgment comes, the death angel will pass over you and you will not see death, but you will see everlasting life. I can imagine the Jews at the time during that feast were thinking to themselves, did it have to be like a lamb? Like, can we like, like use a cat or something? Cats could actually be useful for something, right? That was a joke. You were supposed to laugh. Uh, moving on. Um, why does it have to be a lamb? Could it be another animal? Could we use like, like a blood of a bird? That would be easy because we don't have a big doorpost. You know, just a little bit of blood. Wouldn't that be fun? Does it have to be blood? I don't know how many of you have ever been around when a, an animal's neck is slit. I've seen chickens killed before. There's a lot of blood that comes out of that, you know? My dad raises cows, and when the time comes, takes them to a slaughterhouse. A lot of blood that comes from it. Does it have to be messy? I can imagine the Jews thinking that, like, hmm, kind of messy to, like, kill an animal. Does it have to be? Does it have to be a good sheep? Like, come on, look at something that are about to die anyways, you know? No, it has to be your best. Okay, fine, you know? Bloody, mess, lamb, perfect. You know why? Because all of this was a picture of Jesus. That lamb was a picture of the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It had to be a lamb. It had to be perfect and without spot or blemish because Jesus Christ became sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus was perfect and without sin or blemish. The lamb had to be perfect. Hmm, did it have to be blood? I mean, what the hell? Can we like pl pluck off some wool of the sheep and put it around? Wouldn't that be enough? No, it has to be blood because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And the blood is a picture of a sin covering this Passover was not a show for Pharaoh. This Passover was a setup of the picture of how great Jesus Christ is. The picture of our salvation. Oh, what a beautiful picture. And now Jesus says, hey guys, for thousands of years, 
our people have enjoyed the Passover feast, but that stops tonight. Tonight, the bread no longer represents a middle-of-the-night run for freedom. Tonight, the cup no longer represents the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Tonight, and from this day forward, the bread represents my body, which was given for you, and the cup represents my blood, which was shed for you. And I want you to do this until I come again. So the unleavened bread is now a symbol of the body of Jesus. Sometimes in the Bible, the leaven is a picture of sin. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, tells them, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. The idea is this, a little bit of sin in the church spreads like wildfire. I remember when Angela and I were uh, living in California for a while. We got a hankering one night for malasadas, and we looked up a, a recipe on the internet. We decided we're going to make our own malasadas, right? And so you, if, if you ever looked at a recipe for that, it's very intricate on how it does and how long you have to let, the, let it rise and how much yeast you have to add, and it's only a little bit and stuff like that. And it's, you have to time everything, and temperature has to be perfect. And we made malasadas, and they were terrible. Uh, they were awful. And so we thought, we just need to get back to Hawaii and get them proper, right? If you've never had a malasada, do yourself a favor. Okay, uh, But um, anyways, we, we tried to do that. And I found that when we put yeast in there and it had to wait for the, the dough to rise, you didn't put cups of yeast in there, did you? <laughs> you take like like quarter of a teaspoon, right? A little bit, and you put it in there. Stupid me, think to myself, I want them really fluffy, right? If you put a little bit of yeast in they're pretty fluffy, you put a lot of yeast and they'll be super fluffy. doesn't work that way. Uh, and that's why I'm not allowed to bake. But anyways... Story for another day. Leaven in the Bible is sometimes a picture of sin. And so, again, the unleavened bread, if it's a picture of the body of Jesus Christ, says that Jesus Christ was without sin. We see that the body of Jesus Christ was perfect in every way. The cup is now a symbol of the blood of Jesus. No longer a, a picture of the Passover lamb's blood, but now a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ, which saves us from our sins. So we see a transition here, and really Jesus pointing back and saying, hey guys, that Passover lamb, that was me. The provision that they took in the middle of the night to be able to keep them alive out in the wilderness, that dough that they had where they baked bread in the wilderness and sustained them for days on end when they had nothing else, <laughs> that's actually me. They actually say in the book of John, I am the bread of life. So we see how all of this from the very beginning was a setup to point towards Jesus Christ. I, I love how the Bible, you find Jesus Christ is a common thread from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Jesus. I love how the Bible could never be just a, a book of stories like some have surmised. It can't just be a group of fables that somebody smashed together in a book one day. Because can you imagine somebody thinking that the exodus out of Egypt, which took place thousands of years before Jesus Christ, oh, somebody who wrote that story is also the same person that wrote a story 2,000 years later talking about uh, Jesus and how he was connected to that. No, it's God's story from beginning to end. And so we see now it's a symbol. As we get back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning, it's important to know that the Lord's Supper time is not a time of 
jubilant celebration. It's more of a time of holy consideration. So see in verse number 20 in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, therefore, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. This is where we get uh, the term Lord's Supper from. It's, it's found as Lord's Supper here. If you go back one chapter, it's referred to as the Lord's Table. Uh, some people refer to it as communion. Uh, it doesn't matter what you refer to it as. They all talk about the same thing, Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, communion. He says, when you come together this to get together for a, a feast or a fellowship, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, everyone taketh before another his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. People brought their own food, and they're not sharing with each other. This guy over here has got too much to eat, and is eating himself into a food coma. This person over here doesn't have anything at all, and they're starving to death. This guy's stumbling and drunk in the back. This is not the Lord's Supper. You missed it. This is not a, a big party. When we, who we call it, get together to receive the Lord's Supper, it's not like, hey, all right, who we call it? Oh, take the Lord's Supper tonight. No, it's very quiet. Holy, sacred, special time. Hey, folks, we're here tonight to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. Just like the Passover feast wasn't a big, huge, raucous party, it was a time for everybody to gather together and say, hey, folks, let's remember how good God's been to us. We were once slaves. Our ancestors were slaves in Egypt, and God brought us out by the strong hand. Let's remember that tonight. Lord's Supper is the same type of time of consideration Lord's Supper is a time of, if you see uh, verse number 34, even says, if any man hunger, let him eat at home. If you come not together into condemnation, the rest will I set in order when I come. He says, hey, this is not a time to have a buffet. This is not a time for a potluck. It's not a time to grill burgers and, uh, and have some, some chips and dip, and then we'll throw the Lord's Supper in and kind of as a dessert. No, 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 it's not a time for that. This is a time for us to gather together to remember. If you're hungry, he said, eat at home. But the Lord's Supper is about remembrance and contemplation. Verse number 25, <clears throat> actually verse number 24, when he given thanks and he break it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, we also took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, the remembrance, what is that about? First of all, we need to remember what Jesus has done. And when we talk about remembering, it's not just bring to your mind. Oh yeah, I forgot that Jesus died for my sin. Yeah. To remember is to actively think through in your mind. If it were just bringing to my mind that Jesus has died for my sins, then I could set a reminder on my phone. Hey, Siri, remind me on Monday at 9 a.m. that Jesus died for my sins. It's not that kind of reminder. It's a time of contemplation that I need to think through. Jesus Christ became a man because of his love for me. Jesus Christ came and for 33 and a half years walked the earth and never spent one single solitary time. And one of the men who was the closest to him turned his back on him, sold him out. And then he was beaten, arrested, mocked, spit upon, cursed, and crucified. Publicly humiliated, executed, and died for my sins. 
He didn't have to. He didn't deserve it. I love the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's a beautiful song. It speaks of Christ's crucifixion in our place. One of the lines in the song says this, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It says, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because I have sinned. Why did Jesus have to be crucified? Because I have sinned. Why was he beaten? Because I have sinned. Why was his blood shed? Because I have sinned. I need to remember that. And friend, lest we ever get the idea that God is soft on sin, and I can sin and God's just gonna forgive it, I can just live the way that I am and God's gonna turn a blind eye to it. Please understand, your sin and mine is what hung him on that cross. Our sin is what executed God's only son. So the idea that God's soft on sin is just not a biblical concept. It's not being real. You're not, you're not being truthful. My sin put him on the cross. Had I been there that day that he was crucified, I wouldn't have been standing over with his apostles and with his mother weeping. You know what I would have been saying? Crucify him, crucify him. You know why? Because I love my sin more than I love him. And I need to remember that. And I need to remember where I've been brought from and what I've been brought to. I need to remember that. And God says, I made a way for you to remember that. It's also a time for us not only to remember what Jesus Christ has done, but also to remember that he's coming again. Verse number 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. I love this. You know what the Passover meal was? It was a time to remember what God had done long, long time ago. And mind you, you have Jews that are hundreds of years removed from the actual event of the Passover that are now celebrating the Passover. We don't even really remember what it was about. And they got nothing to look forward to. They just know Passover took place, it's over and done with, that was cool. You and I, when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember what Jesus has done, and then we get to remember that Jesus is coming again. Jesus isn't some storybook for kids. Jesus isn't some story that we read in the Bible. Jesus Christ is my personal Savior who I will get to see face-to-face one day. Oh, what a day that's gonna be. Man, I don't know about you, but I thought about it. What happens the day that I get to see Jesus face-to-face? What's it gonna be like? Oh, man, what worship, what adoration. And I want to help you prepare your heart, prepare your life for the day that you get to see Jesus face to face. I want you to see him with joy and expectation. I'm afraid that many Christians, the thought of seeing Jesus face to face is like, eh, it'd be cool, yeah. I got my ticket punched to heaven, I think I'm good. Hmm disappointing whether you're over the moon joyed about it or whether you're meh about it know this when you're in the presence of Christ himself your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord I'm telling you this I I want there to be joy and excitement and expectation in your heart when you think about the day that you get to see Jesus oh it's going to be awesome and as your pastor I want to prepare you to, to meet Jesus one day in joy not disappointment. Not like, oh, I wish I'd done more. Ah, oh, I wasted my life. No, I want you to meet Jesus one day going, yes, 
This is what I've been waiting for. This is everything that I thought it would be. When we take the Lord's Supper, I get to remember what Jesus has done, but I also get to remember that I get to see him very soon. And this is a good place to stay for just a moment. An easy way to spot a false teacher is anyone who can tell you the day that Jesus is coming back. The Bible says, no man knows the day or the hour. So anybody who says, oh, Jesus is coming back on, uh, you know, July the 7th of 2027. You know why? Because it's got three sevens in it. Seven, seven, seven. Mark of the beast is 666. Mark of Jesus is 777. So July 7th, 2027, Jesus is coming back. Get ready. <clears throat> false teacher, you're done. Oh, but they're really good. And goes, ah, false teacher. No man knows the day or the hour, and anybody who says that they do is a liar. Done. But I know this, Jesus is coming back. He might come back this afternoon. He might come back 2,000 years from now. I don't know, but I'll tell you this, I'm ready and I'm looking forward to it. And until then, since I'm ready, I'm gonna try to help get other people ready. If you don't know Jesus and you're not ready for his coming, I wanna help you get ready today. Tomorrow, I'm going to run into people that I've never met before. You know what I'm going to try to do? I'm going to try to help them get ready because Jesus is coming back very soon. When I take the Lord's Supper, I remember Jesus has done great things for me and I can't wait to get to see him one day. So it's a time to remember, time to contemplate, but it's also a time of repentance and consecration as well. It's a time for me to look inside. First thing I'll do is I look up. I praise God for all that he's done. I look back and I remember who I used to be and what Jesus has brought me from, but now I need to look inside. Take a look at verse number 28. Actually, verse number 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Verse 27 says that nobody should take the Lord's Supper unworthily. So that means I need to look inside and say, is there anything in my life that I need to make right with God? Is there any sin in my life that I've not repented of? This is a good time for me to say, if Jesus died for sinners and for their sin, is there any sin that I'm harboring in my heart that I'm not ready to let go of? If so, today's the day to get rid of it. Be done with it. Move on. So it's a time where I examine myself Verse number 31 says this, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. I don't need anybody to point out anything in my life if I'm willing to judge myself. And what's the standard we use to judge ourselves? The Bible, God's word. I don't judge myself based on how you're doing in your Christian walk. I don't judge myself based on that guy over there and what sin he's involved with. I don't judge myself on that person and how well I think I measure up to them. I judge myself based on God's word. And the Bible says if I would judge myself, I don't need anybody else to judge me. God's word judges me. If I would examine myself and judge myself, I'm good. But during a time of receiving the Lord's Supper, I always tell folks, hey, if there's some sin in your life that you've, you're continuing to go back to that you don't want to make right before God, maybe it's a relationship you have with someone that's not right. Maybe it's an inappropriate relationship or there's strain in your relationship or there's anger or discord or hatred in your heart towards another person. I just ask you not to receive the Lord's Supper. I want you to be right 100%. I always tell people, if that's you, make it right before God. 
and take the Lord's Supper. If you're not willing to make it right, please don't take the Lord's Supper. Just pass it on. But it's the time for us to look inside and say, is everything right with me and God? It's a time of repentance and consecration. Now it goes on. It says, uh, verse number 30, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many, are, many sleep. You see, the Bible says that there's consequences for misuse of the Lord's Supper. This is a holy, special, sacred moment where we remember what Jesus has done for us. This is a time where we pull over for a minute and really contemplate the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus that covered my sins, how wretched my sin is in the sight of God and how uh, right I want to be with him. It's a time where I look inside and have a time of introspection, but the Bible says some people use it in the wrong way. There's consequences for that. It says in verse number 27, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Hmm. How can you be unworthy of the Lord's Supper? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, receiving the Lord's Supper maybe in a ritualistic manner. This is just what I do. There's some churches that take the Lord's Supper every week. Hey, this is the one thing standing between me and lunch. They're going to pass the offering basket. They're going to pass the Lord's Supper. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to split and have lunch. Well, a real lunch, because this cracker didn't go very far. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. It's not a ritual that we go through. Taking the Lord's Supper apathetically would be receiving it unworthily. Meh. This is what we're supposed to do. They're passing my way. I guess I'll take it. Oh, nope. This is not something we flippantly come to. This is a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ has shed his blood for my sins. This is a picture of the fact that he was willing to sacrifice himself for my sins. Uh Uh-uh. This is not flippant. It's serious. To take the Lord's Supper unworthily would be to take it with unconfessed sin. There's something in my life I know that's not right between me and God, but I'm going to take the Lord's Supper anyways. The Bible says you're taking it unworthily. Don't do that. You need to repent of your sin. You need to confess it, make it right before God, and move on. But if you receive the Lord's Supper with sin, you're taking it unworthily. Another way someone can be unworthy for the Lord's Supper is if they're not saved. If you're not a Christian and you take the Lord's Supper, you're taking it unworthily. You haven't yet confessed and repented of your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ to be able to take the Lord's Supper. The Bible says there's consequences for that. It's a big deal to God. Consequences of that, first of all, are God's judgment. It says, whoever eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh unto himself condemnation. That's important to understand what that means. The word condemnation in this case here means judgment. If you're a Christian, Sometimes people come to this passage and say, well, if I'm a Christian, I take the Lord's Supper unworthily, and that means I've lost my salvation because now I'm condemned by God to go to hell. Not what it means. For the Christian, this means chastisement for you. This means God's going to lovingly discipline you and correct you because you have gotten out of bounds and you have sinned against God. And if you take the Lord's Supper, knowing that there's sin in your life, God's going to chastise you for your sin, and God's going to chastise you for making a mockery of the blood and body of his son. Heavy stuff. If you're an unbeliever and you take the Lord's Supper, 
This is just another sin that gets added to your record of everything that you're responsible for. And when you meet God in judgment without the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your account, you're responsible for every wrong you've done. And this is just another line item on your massive list of debt that you owe God. And so he says, you are eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. It's a big deal. It also says, for this cause, many of you are weak and sickly. People get sick because they take the Lord's Supper unworthily. Apathetic, ritualistic, in sin, unbeliever. Paul says, for this cause, many of you have gotten sick. And he goes on to say, and some of you sleep. The word sleep doesn't mean you fell asleep in church. It means you're dead, death. Judgment from God, sickness, death. Has anybody picked up on the fact that this is kind of a big deal to God? This isn't just like, hey, I think I'll take communion on the way out to the parking lot today. No, this is a big deal. That if you take it unworthily, you're inviting on yourself God's judgment, you're inviting upon yourself sickness and death. Well, do you really believe that God kills people for taking the Lord's Supper? I don't have any reason to believe that he doesn't. He didn't say, just in this case, some Corinthians, but it's never really gonna happen again. I can't say that. Can I say that some people have never gotten sick because they took the Lord's Supper unworthily? I can't say that. The Bible says that some people did, and I have to believe that that still continues. Now, do I believe that people take the Lord's Supper and immediately fall over dead? No. It might happen. It could happen. But I'm just saying, this is serious business to God. Don't make a mockery of it. Don't play around with it. It's not a joke before God. Now, I will confess as a kid, my mom uh, was a, uh, a deacon's wife in our church. My dad was a deacon. And the deacon's wives were responsible for cooking the unleavened bread for the Lord's Supper. And there were times that me and my brother snuck in the kitchen and took unleavened bread out of the little container that was supposed to go to church, and we ate it because it was fun. Question, does that mean that I made a mockery of the Lord's Supper? No, it's just bread sitting on the counter. The moment where we gather together and the pastor says we're doing this in a holy moment to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us, at that moment, the moment became significant. Up until that, it was just a box of crackers that were sitting on the counter. We hoped that mom wouldn't notice it too much. It was missing. So the actual elements themselves, nothing sacred, holy, or special about that. The moment that we're in and making a mockery of what Christ has done for us, that is a huge deal. Now, that being said, good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches do things differently when it comes to the Lord's Supper. You might be sitting here this morning going, dude, you say the Lord's Supper is a big deal, but we've never taken the Lord's Supper one single solitary time in all the time that I've been in who we call it. What's that about? Glad that you asked. It's the difference in administration, the way that we do it, which we'll take a look at in just a moment. Now, when it comes to the difference of administration, we have to ask the question, how often do we take the Lord's Supper? The Bible doesn't give us clear guidelines for that. And so every church is different, and it's kind of left up to the discretion of the pastor who's responsible for leading uh, the, the flock that God's given him. And so how often do we take the Lord's Supper? No biblical guideline for that. The Feast of the Passover was done once a year, but Jesus didn't say do this once a year instead of the Feast of the Passover. I know some churches that will only do the Lord's Supper during the Feast of the Passover. I don't think that's the guidelines that Jesus was giving here. But here's what he does say. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So he doesn't tell us how often to do it. 
Some churches will do it once a quarter. Some churches will do it once a month. Uh, some churches will do it once uh, a week. I have found that the more often that we do things, the more they become routine to us and we forget what they're all about. I take my vitamins every single morning out of routine. I don't think to myself, oh, this guy here is vitamin D3 that's good for this. Oh, this here is vitamin C. It's going to help me from getting sick. Oh, this right here, this is my calcium supplement because I'm lactose intolerant. Oh, this supplement right here. I don't do that. You know what I do? I grab a handful of it, I throw it in, and I choke it down every single day without fail. I don't think about it. I just do it. And I find the more often that we do something, it just becomes second nature. Probably beginning next week, we're not going to sing the doxology on the way out. You know why? Because people just stand up and sing the doxology. They don't think about praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Ghost. We just stand up and we sing because it's the song we sing right before we head out the door, right? So think about it. It's what we do. If we take the Lord's Supper every week, that's just what we do. It's what's standing between me and lunch today. And I gotta get it out of the way so we can move on. So personal preference. Again, churches that do it every, every Sunday, is it unbiblical? No, it's just different. And so uh, again, we just do things differently. So for us as a church family, we take communion three times a year, three. We do it at Easter. We did not do it this past Easter because of all the craziness going on. Uh, we're looking for a time on the calendar where we can do it in place of our Easter communion that we missed. Uh, we wanna take time at Easter time to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he broke bread with his apostles the same way that we'll break bread together as a church family to remember what he had done for us. We do it at Christmas time to remember that God became a man and dwelt among us so that he could make us the sons and daughters of God. That The whole purpose of the Christmas season was to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us and how he became a man to save us from our sins. Third time, which we just instituted two years ago, is our church anniversary in October. Every October, we'll take the Lord's Supper together as a church family to remember what God has done for our church family in particular and how God's taken us from almost seven years ago, seven years this October, of a small gathering of people to a, a mighty force of God's people at work here in the city. We'll remember it at that time together. So how often do we do it? Uh, we do it as often as we do it to remember Jesus Christ versus the church, that's three times a year. Now, to answer the question of why don't we ever take the Lord's Supper together here on a Sunday morning, the question is, in what setting do we take the Lord's Supper? There's basically three schools of thought which come to this. Um, the Bible doesn't give us direct, clear guidelines. I believe the Bible gives us principles that we should follow uh, of what's wise. But I know good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches that do it differently than we do, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong. The first type of communion would be what's referred to as open communion. Basically, anybody who proclaims to be a professing Christian can receive. Uh, that would be this Sunday morning, we're just gonna pass it down the aisles. Whoever wants to take it is welcome to take it. Uh, if you're part of this church family, if you're not, you go to a different church. Uh, maybe you're of a different type of church or not even consider a Christian. You're welcome to take it, welcome to receive it. I believe this is incredibly unwise, irresponsible, and dangerous. Because somebody walks in that back door and they're visiting us from Montana. I have no idea who you are, whether or not you've been saved, whether or not you've accepted Christ as Savior, whether or not you're walking right with God, and I'm gonna pass you 
something that you will eat and drink to yourself, God's judgment, sickness, or death by my hand? Uh Uh-uh, not on my watch. I'm not gonna be responsible for that. I take that seriously. So we're not gonna pass out the Lord's Supper in an open communion environment, and so we don't do open communion here. There are churches who are like, hey, on the way out, on the back table back there, we got communion, grab it on your way out to the parking lot. Just grab it, pop the top, there's a little cracker there, and pop the second top, and they drink it and as you go. I don't believe that fits the spirit of what Jesus was trying to do. It's definitely not the spirit of the Passover feast on which it was derived from. And I don't believe it follows the guidelines where the local church pastor is responsible for the people that he administers it to. So I take it very seriously so we don't do open communion. Second type of communion is what's referred to as close communion, C-L-O-S-E, close. This would be, hey, if you're visiting with us from a church of like faith or practice and you would call yourself a Christian, you're welcome uh, to receive the Lord's Supper with us today. Close communion would basically say, hey, those uh, who are visiting or not part of our church family, you're welcome to receive it as long as you're a professing Christian, as long as you agree with our biblical doctrine. Again, the idea that I see with that is that, again, I'm responsible for ministering to someone what would cause judgment, sickness, or death. Take it very seriously. I would hate for somebody who thinks that they're a Christian because they were baptized one time to take the Lord's Supper thinking that they're a Christian or thinking that the Lord's Supper will save them, yet here they don't fully understand what this even means or what it's about. The guy visiting from Montana, oh, he goes to a good Bible, a believing Bible preaching, Baptist church that I might even know his pastor, but I don't know that that guy is not here with his wife. He's actually here in Hawaii with his girlfriend. He ran away from his wife and decides he wants to take the Lord's Supper with us. Here, take the Lord's Supper with us today as we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and remember all he's done for us while you are in open rebellious sin. And I just handed to you God's judgment, condemnation, chastisement, and you might get sick or die, but welcome, glad you're here. I take that very, very seriously. And for that reason, we don't do close communion. So we do what's referred to as closed communion, which is open to church members only. And the reason why is because this, every person who's a member of who we call a Baptist church has had an eyeball to eyeball conversation with me. They told me about how they got saved, where they were baptized, and they've committed to living in accordance with God's word in a righteous and holy manner And if they're not, they're gonna let me know. They've given me their word. Because of that, I feel comfortable saying, you say that you're living right according to Jesus. You say that you've been saved, baptized. I affirm your testimony and we can celebrate this together. Otherwise, I'm putting myself and that person in a very, very dangerous position. You one day will stand before God for the way that you lived your life, the way that you stewarded God's blessings, If you're a husband and a father for your family, you'll stand before God and you'll answer to God for that. For me as your pastor, I'll stand before God and I'll answer for this church and the way that I led it and the people that I led. I take that very, very seriously. So I'm not just gonna flippantly say, oh, here, take this. I don't know who you are, but I'm glad you're here. Take this and drink it and eat it because we're all part of God's big family. And if you see, this letter was written to the church at Corinth, a local church, to tell them, hey guys, here's how the church handles this. Local bodies of believers handle the Lord's table. So for us as a church family, those three times of the year, we send out a private invitation to church members only. And we say, hey, if it's Good Friday where we celebrate uh, the Lord's crucifixion, hey, Lord's uh, Good Friday service is at seven. Lord's Supper is at six. So we'll gather together here at six as church members. We'll take the Lord's Supper. 
and then we'll wait around for the, the Good Friday service to start. Uh, times where we haven't had a Good Friday service, we'll do it on a Saturday afternoon. We'll just go home afterwards. Service only lasts about 15 minutes long. We'll read this passage of Scripture. We'll pass out the elements. We'll pray for them and thank God for all he's done for us. We'll sing a song and then we'll go home. Because it's such a big deal for us, uh, we normally have child care workers come in to keep children out in the lobby while we take the Lord's Supper in here because we don't want any of our people to miss it. Only three times a year we take this holy moment together. We don't want somebody having to watch kids every time. There's been times in the, in the past where my wife has volunteered because we couldn't get child care workers uh, to do that. But she's generally come in before and taken the Lord's Supper uh, here privately before uh, everybody else came so she could watch kids. But it's very rare that we do that because it's such a big deal for us. So we do it privately in a moment like that. At Christmas Eve service, if we have it at 6, we'll have Lord's Supper at 5. Uh, our church anniversary is on a Sunday. We'll have it on a Saturday afternoon. And it says, hey, I'm willing to make a sacrifice to remember what Jesus has sacrificed for me. We have folks that drive from Mililani and Kapolei out here 45 minutes one way to sit in a 15-minute service to remember what Jesus has done. You know why? Because it's a big deal. It's a special, holy moment for us. So, Again, I view the Lord's Supper just as the Passover feast where if you had a stranger or a friend who was from out of town, they weren't able to take the Lord's Supper because they weren't part of that group. Again, if you had a hired servant in your house that you owned, they could be circumcised, become a Jew, and then they could take the the Passover feast with you and see the Lord's Supper the same way. You want to take the Lord's Supper with us? Great. Commit to church membership. Commit to living a holy, righteous life before God, and we will celebrate together as a church family. So, Next question, with what elements do we use? Uh, you know, again, the church that I grew up in, the deacon's wives bake unleavened bread. For us as a church, we uh, go to the Christian bookstore, they have packets of unleavened crackers that are already pre-cracked for you, just dump them in a dish and pass it. Does it matter? No. The idea is that it's unleavened bread. Now, for passing a loaf of you know, sourdough bread down the row, where everybody's taking a, a bit off of it, or a, a loaf of white bread from Love's, you know, we got a problem unleavened bread because it's a picture of the body of Jesus Christ which is perfect when without sin so it doesn't matter whether it's prepackaged or whether it's uh, you know once you buy at the store it just is what it is as long as it's unleavened bread questions come up before do we use real wine or do we use grape juice uh, we use grape juice there's no indication that the wine that was used in the Passover feast or even at the, the first uh, Lord's Supper no indication that that was even alcoholic wine uh, once grape juice is squeezed, it immediately begins the fermenting process. So if it sat around for six hours unrefrigerated, the fermenting process has become, doesn't necessarily make it alcoholic or that anyone could get drunk from it. And so we don't have any indication that it was alcoholic wine. And, and I believe, my belief as a pastor, is that it is unwise for Christians to drink alcohol and in many cases sinful for Christians to drink alcohol, but it's definitely unwise. So I'm not going to be the guy that's at Costco with three big bottles of wine sitting there. Oh, these are for the Lord's Supper, everybody, uh, as they scan my Costco card. No, not on my watch. Uh, and here's the other thing, too, that you might not know. There are people in our church that are struggling with alcohol use. There are people in our, our church that are currently in recovery programs that are, are hundreds of days sober. It would be a foolish thing for us to give them alcohol just because we wanted to be biblical. You know, That's foolish. We're not going to do it. It's just grape juice. Now, again, does that matter? Not one bit. You know where the grape juice comes from? Longs. It's nothing special about the grape juice. Not holy grape juice. You know where the, the, the pre-cut crackers come from? The Christian books. Or you go buy a packet of this afternoon if you wanted. There's nothing special about those themselves. The specialness comes from the moment. The sacredness comes from the time that we gather together to stop and remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
That's the special part about it. Now, in what manner do we take it? Some uh, churches will take the, the bread and dip it in the cup and, and eat that and, and drink the cup. Does it matter with that? Not necessarily. Jesus says, you know, you take the, the bread, you take the cup, you tr- take those and, and remember what Jesus has done and you're thankful for it. Uh, there are some churches which share a cup, which I think is just nasty. Uh, and so uh, we don't take a cup and pass it down and everybody drinks off of it. Um, I watched some, some videos on YouTube one time of uh, you know, Catholic mass and how they would have it. And basically everybody comes up and drinks the cup and they have, a, they have a cloth that they wipe the cup and then they hand it to the next person. No way. Make that number 16,001 why I'm not a Catholic. I'm never gonna drink out of your cup. That's nasty. Uh, but uh, if people do it, does that make them unbiblical? No, it doesn't. You know, uh, oftentimes in the Passover feast, they would pass around a cup. Uh, but hey, before coronavirus, I ain't drinking out your cup. But after it, definitely ain't drinking out your cup. So uh, everybody gets their own cup, do your own thing, right? Uh, so, but does that make somebody unbiblical because they do it? No, not necessarily. It just makes them different. Uh, some Lord's Supper services are, are, are more reverent. Ours would be. Uh, some are more casual. Where Again, it's more flippant. Like, hey, grab your Lord's uh, Supper on the way out to the parking lot and remember what Jesus has done for you. Have a great week. I don't believe that that's wise. Does it mean that it's necessarily wrong or that they're unbiblical? Maybe not necessarily. I think it's just not the best way to do things. Uh, again, some folks are more sacred, uh, where it's a special, holy, reverent time. Other more routine, again, uh, on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, or, oh, it's the first Sunday of the month. I think we're having Lord's Supper today, something along those lines. For us, uh, as, as a church family, we have it on the calendar, so you know when it's coming up. You know that uh, two weeks from this Saturday is the, the next Lord's Supper, whatever it is on the calendar, so you can begin preparing yourself for that because it's a big deal. For us, we close out with a hymn. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Matthew that when the apostles had ate, eaten the Passover feast with Jesus, they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so for us, we sing a song that talks about Jesus. We usually sing, Worthy is the Lamb. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid, bearing all my sin and shame and love you came and gave amazing grace. Thank you for this love, Lord. Thank you for your nail-pierced hands. Washed me in your cleansing flow. Now all I know is your forgiveness and embrace. Worthy is the Lamb. We sing that just to remember what Jesus has done for us and how much he's given to us. So several different ways which we can do the Lord's Supper. The main thing is, is that you do it. Now, here at Huikala, three times a year, closed communion for church members. We do it here, we sing a song, we go home. That's it. That's not the most important part that I want you to get from today. Again, I always try to give you application to take away. First of all, if you're not a member of this church, you should consider it. Church membership is this. I commit to live like Jesus, to love, pray, give, serve, invest. These are my people. This is where I want to be. This is where I live out my Christian life. I would encourage you to do that. To be a member of Huikala Baptist Church, you have to commit to to being a church member, you have to be saved and baptized. If you haven't been baptized yet, you need to be baptized, we'll take care of that too. But church membership, I sometimes say, doesn't come with any special privileges, you know, we don't have any members only parking, you don't get a special, uh, you know, shirt that you get to wear saying that you're a member or anything like that, you don't get name tags because you're a member. I think one of the privileges of membership is though is being a part of the Lord's Supper, it's a big deal. And so I would encourage you to look at church membership. Uh, as a way to to be committed to the church body and also as a way to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. But here's what all of us can do this week. Not taking the Lord's Supper this week, but here's what you can do this week. Look inside yourself and say, am I living a life that's worthy of the Lord's sacrifice? I like the idea of living a worthy life. I want my life to be a life that was worth Jesus dying for. I don't want to waste my life. Second thing I can ask is, 
looking forward to the return of Jesus? Am I remembering what he's done and looking forward to the day that he gets to come back? And am I ready for that? I want to help you be ready for that. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, I'd like for you to know Jesus died for your sins. That the Lord's Supper, communion, whatever you want to call it, it's never saved anybody in the world. Unfortunately, people take that believing that they're receiving Jesus Christ. Couldn't be further from the truth. If you take the Lord's Supper and you're not saved, you're really just eating further condemnation upon yourself. But you know for sure that you're saved. If not, today's your opportunity to be saved. Jesus died for your sins so that you could have faith in him, repent of your sins, and be saved. For those of us that are saved, though, live worthy this week, a life that was worth Jesus dying for. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.